So we have access to everything and um, we can do everything that the big guys can. Welcome to episode 346 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. What's it like to own and operate a local telecommunications company? This week's guest, Brent Christensen of Christensen Communications, is visiting with Christopher. In addition to discussing his experiences offering services in greater Minnesota, Brent also talks about his role with the Minnesota Telecommunications Alliance, an advocacy group that represents the interests of companies like Christensen Communications all over the state. Brent and Chris discuss some of the advances Minnesota has made in bringing support to ISPs expanding broadband and how the Alliance has helped with those advances. They also talk about the permitting process, how railroads factor into deployment for companies like Brent's, and some of the matters that Brent, as a telecom provider, has found local governments should consider to improve chances of partnerships. Learn about Christensen Communications at chriscomco.net. Now here's Christopher with Brent Christensen of Christensen Communications. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. This is Chris Mitchell coming to you from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, speaking today with Brent Christensen, the president and CEO of MTA, the Minnesota Telecommunications Alliance, as well as the vice president and chief operating officer of Christensen Communications out of Medelia, Minnesota. Welcome to the show, Brent. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on. I think that might be the longest title that we've had for anyone, which is a pretty good record, interviewing some government folks. Yeah. Well, they say the longer the title, the less it means, but it kind of reflects both the jobs I do. I want to thank you for coming into our Ice Cube today. I feel like this is our Klobuchar moment of, <laughs> of doing our interview in an office that has lost its furnace. Um, if you hear a hum in the background, it is a space heater that is uh, making things tolerable in here. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not bad. It's kind of comfortable. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's about 55 degrees, and, and I don't know. I like to sleep in this weather, so yeah. I'll try to stay awake for the entirety of the interview. Sure. Um, so, I'll try not to bore you too much. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about, um, well, for background, um, I just visited your office down in Medelia, Minnesota, yep. and got a tour of what you're doing. And I'd like you to just describe a little bit the history of Christensen Communications. We started in 1903, and we started, uh, there were 48 people in town that got together. Uh, the Fairmont Telephone Company built lines from Fairmont to Medelia, but would just serve the, the city limits. And so uh, 48 people got together and decided that wasn't good enough. They wanted to get outside of the city limits. So they, uh, they started a telephone company, kind of the first CLEC or one of the first CLECs. Um, and they went to my great-great-grandfather who owned the flour mill in town and said, hey, would you buy 25% of the stock? And so he did. And that's how we got involved with it. And over the years, acquired more and more uh, of the stock until uh, my grandfather passed away in 1982 and he had all but five shares. And my dad picked those up. So that's kind of the, you know, it was one of those things that it could have gone either way in 1903. It could have, I mean, they could have sold stock or they could have started a co-op. I mean, it just, that's the way it went. I'm the fifth generation of my family to be involved with it. And, and uh, we've been part of the community ever since. And how many lines do you have? We have oh, about 1,100 total. We've got about 900 access lines in our ILEC in Medelia, and then uh, we've got about three or 400 in our CLEC in St. James. 
Great. And just for people who are newer to the show, ILEC is your incumbent territory and CLEC is where, where you're a competitive carrier. You know, you're That's competitive, in, in effect, everywhere now, but right, it's a, right. the old historic boundaries when we had a monopoly officially. And that's on the different sides of business. You know, so on the telephone side, our incumbent area is Medelia, our franchised area. Um, but then on the broadband, there is no franchise area, so we can go pretty much anywhere. So what is it like being one of the smallest um, telephone companies in the modern era when, you know, you're, you're having to look at these advanced technologies and things like that? You know, that's a good question. People ask that all the time. So how does, how does a little guy like us survive? survive? And to be honest... Uh, we don't know any other way because we've always been small. Um, we It's all partnerships. So we partner with other telephone companies. Uh, we started uh, Broadband Internet in, in 2000. Uh, I didn't know anything about it. So we, we partnered with another telephone company who was, who was already doing or just starting it. And we have connections to the outside world through Mankato and New Ulm. We have a, a lease of fiber that goes all the way up to the 511 building. So we have access to everything. And um, we can do everything that the big guys can. We just uh, we like to brand it ourselves sometimes if it's not our product, and we get it from the phone company. But we can we can do anything. And you face competition from a cable company in Medelia. Right. Yeah. Comcast has uh, two properties outside the Twin Cities Metro, and one of them happens to be in Medelia. And the irony in that is we started the cable company uh, back in the early 80s and, and sold it off. So. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so have they gone to Doxus 3.1 there? Or? Yeah, I believe they have. Yeah, okay. they've, they've taken fiber to the, to the node, and um, they did that a few years ago. Yeah, that's one of the things that, um, you know, I've, I try to pay attention to because I I have a lot of criticisms of Comcast, but I also have the sense that of the big cable companies, they tend to upgrade more widely the fastest. So I'm always curious what's really happening in smaller towns. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, uh, I don't know. It's been probably close to 10 years ago when they upgraded their and put fiber in their network in town. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so you're also the, the president and CEO of MTA, yep. which is not the Montana Telecom Association. <laughs> it's Minnesota Telecommunications Alliance, I believe. Yep. Um, so uh, tell me about that. So we're the trade association that represents, and it depends on how you count them. Um, I count them on the, on the holding company level. So there's, there's 44 members of MTA. Uh, they operate over over uh, 70 telephone companies throughout the state of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Right, because, for instance, like Akira, I think they operate two, right? They have yep. two different co-ops that they operate. Asira, yeah, that's, yes, they're two oh, separate. Asira, it's two separate co-ops that share staff and management. Okay, and it's, but, and it's pronounced Asira, apparently. Asira, yeah. Okay, <laughs> And then, um, you know, like Arvig has got 12 companies or so, and, mm-hmm. and Nuvera has got, uh, which used to be New Alm Telecom, they have several mm-hmm. um there's there's a there's a lot of them right um so what are your big priorities this year well we our number one priority is to get funding for the border-to-border broadband grant program that's been uh we didn't get funding we got funding passed through the legislature but it was in that mega omnibus bill that didn't get passed so mm-hmm. we didn't get that last session uh so we're really working hard to get funding for that for this year um I don't know what it means, but the governor, the House, and the Senate all have the same numbers for the grant program. Mm-hmm. Um, so I take that as optimistic, so I hope it is. Which would be the highest it's been funded for any single year, I think, in the first year. The Well, in... Is that right? They, no, they did have a $35 million grant year in like year two or three. Okay. Um, it is higher, but not the. it's not unprecedented. 
Okay. Um, the the grant program is one. It's one of the areas in which you and I agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, for people who, who aren't familiar, Brent, and we'll talk about this later, you're not a fan of municipalities getting involved directly in this. Yep. And um, I originally um, helped to design this program. Um, it changed a bit in the course of, of legislating it. I, I got the sense that you were pretty nervous about the state getting involved at the time. Well, I wasn't a fan, um, and I certainly wasn't a fan in the beginning of the Office of Broadband Development. Um, I saw it as uh, another regular regulator mm-hmm. uh, involved in this. Um, you know, our industry is unique, in from, and, I, and I speak about the landline telephone side. Um, not only we're, we're the only competitive utility, but we're regulated by the Department of Commerce, the Public Utilities Commission, mm-hmm. the Office of Attorney General, and the FCC. Our competitors are not. Um, so I was concerned that that was going to tip into the, the the broadband world as well, and I was wrong. Um, they really prove that you know they they bust down silos at the Office of Broadband Development, and they really have helped in much more ways than just the grant program. I credit that almost entirely with Dana McKenzie. Oh, absolutely, uh, Dana and, and Diane and their staff um, they do a phenomenal mm-hmm. job, and and um, I think there are two factors in there. One that it got housed in, in deed and not commerce. Right. So it was it's an economic development issue now, not a, a regulatory issue. That's a big part of it. The other part of it is the people that they've got. Diane Wells came from the department. Well, she is an employee of the Department of Commerce assigned to OBD. Um, she's one of the few people I've ever met in state government that understands private business. Uh, and then Dana's experience, she's a problem solver. She's interested in that, not in in politics. So I and I haven't met anybody that doesn't fully credit them with the success of that office. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that I think Dana brought with her was more than a decade of experience with this issue. Yes. She had a sense of of the real dynamics having been um in IT for yep. the for a very rural county in Minnesota. Yep. And and I I would just harp on this one last second to say that for other states that are looking at programs I think the rules matter. I think how you where you house it in the departments matter. But finding a good person is the single most important thing. Yep. I couldn't have said it better myself. I absolutely agree. She has uh, not only she serves on the FCC's BDAC, uh, Broadband Development Advisory Committee, uh, but she has um, also worked with a number of other states to replicate what we do here in Minnesota. Um, and I, I've had the opportunity to do that too. And uh I, I, I tell them exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the other things that I think is important, which I suspect you'll agree with, is that one of the best things about Minnesota's program, the way it's designed, is that it doesn't really have a high overhead. Almost all the money that's appropriated goes toward better networks. Absolutely. That's, that was another big thing. You know, when you start, government never goes away. It only gets bigger. Um, I've never seen an exception to that until OBD. Well, I would uh, disagree with you on that, but we're not going to go down that pipe. <laughs> Darn it. We're on a roll. <laughs> Shoot. Uh, but they, they absolutely, that's absolutely true. They, they have not gotten any bigger. They've found their, their niche. They've, they do it really, really well. And they do so much more than just the grant program. I'll give you an example. We had a, a problem with MnDOT in the permitting process that it took to get um, – uh, right-of-way permits for to, to deploy fiber. Sure. And it was taking a long time. It was taking, you know, up to 12, 16 weeks. And we have a very short construction season, so, you know, we're trying to get this out. Well, they facilitated through Deeds. Uh, Deeds got a one-stop business shop where they get all the, the players together, they sit down, and we've cut that time almost in half. 
Uh, still has a ways to go uh, compared to our neighboring states, but but we're cutting that down. And mm-hmm. they and they did that. One of the things that I, I learned on my tour that I thought was really interesting as a lesson learned, uh, Mike Den, um, one of your technical guys, he said that a lesson you've learned is it's better to go down thinly populated roads, like really mm. just township roads, yep. as opposed to the, the bigger MnDOT roads. Yeah. The permitting is so much easier when you do it that way. Um, and a lot of times you just go pay a hundred bucks to the, to the county and you're done and you got it and you can go. Um, that's not the case when you, when you're at MnDOT. Um, and we're going to talk later about railroads. That's really not the case for the railroads. It, it's easy to do that, easier to do that. And it's cheaper and we can deploy faster. Sure. Because we have such a short construction season. <laughs> Last year in particular. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was talking to some of the, um, one of our listeners runs US Internet. And, okay. um, and I think he was saying it was the shortest construction season they've had since they yeah. started doing fiber. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had early snows. We had late snows. And actually, I was just looking at some photos from last year, um, photos of me building a big snow tunnel with my son in the middle of April. <laughs> and 10 days later, yeah. shooting a baseball game with green grass and blue skies. Yep. So yep. Yep. <laughs> pretty quick turn around there. Absolutely. So railroads, you, you mentioned that. This is something that I, I, I've long been frustrated with. Whenever I talk to people about the real challenges of deployment, they'll say to me things like, dig once is nice, but let's deal with the railroads and, and a few other issues. So I just learned from you that states have more authority to deal with this than I thought they did. Yeah, we had a, a real bad problem for, for a number of years with it, um, with railroads. And, and the, the problem was they were charging us fees to even be in public right-of-ways. Uh, and then they were charging some exorbitant and then a lot of times ongoing fees. Uh, I'll give you an example. We had a, uh, we had a case in, uh, the garden Valley technologies was building fiber to city hall in Faustin. And they had about, uh, several blocks that they had to parallel the, the railroad right away and then cross it to get to city hall. Mm-hmm. The permits and the fees that the railroad was going to charge them came to a total of about $72,000 over 20 years. So in, you don't make that up in monthly service fees. And, and so it's, you know, it was very expensive to do that. And when we're, we're talking about this, does the railroad actually have to do anything? Does it incur no, any costs? No, no. Yeah, that's the, that's the crazy part. Well, they, you know, they believe they own all of it, even in the public right-of-way. So we were able to pass a law in 2016 that uh, put a cap on that and, and put a, a, a standard fee for crossing a railroad right-of-way. Uh, and then nothing if we're in a public right-of-way, because we have just as much right to be in that public right-of-way as everybody else does. So that that helps. Uh, we still have some shenanigans that are that are going on. We still have some problems with with the railroads. Uh, you know, they'll require flaggers and they'll uh, to be on site, and they'll they're holding up uh, applications and and different things like that. But we're working through those. And okay. We get a great attorney, and he sends uh, sends letters and. We just keep plugging along. And I and I do hear from some ISPs that they have good relationships with railroads. So I don't want to cast too wide of a net. Um, but some of them are really um, just looking to um, maximize their return on something that doesn't really impact them at all and is really important for the community. Well, and their argument, and I get it, their argument is that, that they have to protect the integrity of their railroad. And, and I get that. But... In, in this day and age, we directionally bore under railroads, and we start 50 feet on one side, go way under their stuff, and come out 50 feet on the other. So there is no impact. And the law says that, that they need to be compensated for the diminution in value of their property, and there isn't any. So, you know, that's – and we've, we've got a couple court cases in our favor, and so it's, uh, it's, it is something to deal with. And it, and it delays, and it, and it 
could cause problems with the with deploying uh, of the network. And so let's get back to Christensen Communications now. Yeah. Um, tell me what your plans were before the ACAM model came out, which I believe is the alternative Connect America Fund model. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Um, the ACAM came out in January of 17. So for about two years before that, we had been working on a plan to go fiber to the prem. Because of our size, it isn't something we can go out and service debt on. I mean, we just we just can't afford to do that. Right. I mean, do you, can you give us like an average cost of what you expect it to, to hit you with? We thought the total project would be in the 6 to $8 million range. Mm-hmm. And so the first step in that was to engineer the whole thing and say, and I, and I told the staff, we're not putting anything in the ground that isn't part of this master plan going mm-hmm. forward. So we're going to, we're going to do that. Uh, so we started that and then we knew something would be happening in the, in that realm. Uh, we didn't know exactly what. Uh, so we started that plan and we were one year into it. Uh, we were working on the businesses on main street first in 2016, we had a, a fire that took out a big chunk of our, our Main Street. So that kind of shifted our plans as they re- rebuilt. We were going to build the south side first and then the north side of Main Street. Now, fire was on the north side of Main Street, so sure. we're building over there. So we did that the first year and then uh, put in some uh, some big fibers to, to move out of town, and we we're, were building that out. Well, ACAM came along, and so um, we had to make a commitment that we would build out in the rural areas uh, to certain standards. Some of them were 25.3, some were to 10.1, um, and then there were actually some that were also 4.1. Um, we don't, just for pausing for a yeah. second, and that's based on a model that the FCC uses based on reasonableness of cost to make sure those people have something. Yes, right? yes. So we took a look at that and um, decided that that would accelerate our and define where we were going to build first. So mm-hmm. um, we're... That's what we're doing. We're using ACAM money. It's speeding up the process. I mean, it would take us probably 15 years to, to build it the old way, uh, and now we can do it in probably in 10. So uh, that's our plan. And as far as building to the speeds, yeah, we're not. We're, mm-hmm. we're just we're taking fiber everywhere. So, And I think most of the ACAM companies are doing that. And you say that in Minnesota. You yeah, can yes. speak to that. Yeah, <laughs> in Minnesota. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> you said there's uh, eight others in Minnesota? No, there's 14 total. Oh, okay. 14 companies, and, and it's something like $54 million a year that's coming into the state for ACAM. Okay. So when you're planning that sort of thing, you mentioned doing the master plan and everything. Uh-huh. You have seven employees. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, does that mean some people work overtime? I mean, how do you make it work to take on just the normal work and then additional work with the, the long-term planning? That's a really good question. Um, it we do it, We do it a couple different ways. First of all, we don't engineer it ourselves. We hire an engineer. Uh, Mike Den, who you met, is our outside plant manager. He works with them, and they they did the whole master plan. Um, and then he does the the uh, some of the smaller projects within that. Um, we've gotten into fiber splicing, and we have our own splicing trailer. Mm-hmm. And so we have a couple Mike, and then one other tech that will handle that. Um, then we have a technician that he handles. Uh, trouble calls, uh, does a lot of fixed wireless work, uh, telephone systems, that sort of thing. And we have another tech that kind of manages the network. In a small shop like ours, everybody does something, a little mm-hmm. bit of everything. So everybody's there to help each other out. And then we got one guy that uh, he fixes computers. Uh, and when he's not doing that, he will take trouble calls too. And they, they all take turns being on calls. So they all share the workload. They work really, really well together. It's, it's an incredible team. 
And then we have the two gals in, that run the front office. And so everybody helps everybody else out depending on what's going on. You know, we have to use outside vendors for construction and for engineering, that sort of thing. So what you're describing to me actually seems broadly similar to the trends I see, you know, it, particularly in like Iowa, where we see some munis that have fewer than 4,000 lines. Um, you know, I think yep. most of the munis are bigger than you, but they have similar issues. So anyway, I just, whenever I'm, I'm thinking, I don't necessarily change the way I'm thinking about this, but I think you draw a, a significant distinction between a municipality that is, that is directly providing service um, and, a, and a small company like yours. Yes. I have to clarify because um, to me, they're, they're ILEC munis and SELEC munis. Okay. And, you know, in Minnesota, we used to have two. Now we have one. Right. And that one is a member of my organization. Right. Much uh, like Swiftel is out in um, South Dakota. Yes. Yep. So that's a different deal. Um, you know, anytime you're going to SELEC, you're, you're taking a risk. And I believe it's a lot cheaper to expand a network than it is to create a network. And so when you when you've seen some expansions for in business cases that didn't live up to their hype and didn't work, um, we've seen some some partnerships uh, more at the county level than the municipal level that I think have been very successful. Um, and I think that's the model that if if a community is, wants to expand their broadband, I think that's the model that they need to follow. Find a partner and go for it. What do you think? What's the a model county partnership in your mind in Minnesota? Oh, I think the and this was one of the side effects of the grant program that nobody saw coming uh, was some of these partnerships. Uh, to me, Big Stone and Swift they're the they're the gold standard on this. You know, they're built out. You know, other projects are still trying to find their way, and they're done. You know, and mm -hmm. there and that's and how did that work? And I'm I'm not the subject matter expert on it. Sure, but the county. <laughs> I, the didn't, ca I didn't tell you there'd be a big, <laughs> big <laughs> test here. Um, the county bonded for the the match for the grant. The, then they they loaned that money to the to the telephone company. In this case, it was uh, Federated Telephone, and then they built the network. Well, they have ten years before they have to start paying it back. So they can build up their customer base, they can build up the revenue, and then they can start paying it back. And and also. Uh, they have to, the county is responsible for helping to market this and getting mm -hmm. people on board. So, you know, it's, we're, we're past the days of build it and they will come. Right. So that's a real partnership. That's a real partnership. They did that and they did that in a span of basically two years from, from start to finish and they're mm -hmm. done. You know, that's to me, that's the way to do it. Sure. And so I like that model. And, and we've seen a number of these models in which the county is, is often subsidizing in some manner the expansion. I think that's yep. entirely appropriate for essential infrastructure. Yep. I like it when it's a, when it's a co-op. I, I told you in the, when we were driving around that yep. if you're going to partner with a, a small local company, I'm in favor of that too. I would encourage a right of first refusal in the event that um, the small local company sells to a company that is not as rooted in the community, which I think of as being a significant difference in terms of how to decisions are made. Um, and so I'm, I'm supportive of that. I'm also supportive of the ones in which you said things didn't work out. And in Minnesota, we actually have a high concentration of municipal networks that I would say didn't perform financially as expected, and yet did deliver benefits to the community as expected. And to the extent that they needed to be subsidized, I mean, Monticello is an example. Yep. Um, I think the community seems 
you know, at peace with it. I think the community did not want to subsidize it. They are subsidizing it. They're, hopefully we'll get to a point soon in which they are not. But they are delivering the benefits that they were looking for in terms of having local businesses have competitive service and things like that. And I, I say that just because I think the things I've said, you know, you certainly would not agree with a lot of them. But the point I would like to discuss with you is this um, idea. I don't think there's always a willing partner nearby. And I think, you know, for instance, with Big Stone and Swift, um, if, if all of the counties nearby were clamoring for that, I think it overwhelms Federated. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are extenuating circumstances and cases. My, my problem with, with that is the, there is no full disclosure with, with the taxpayers. You know, they're told one thing, that these networks are going to be self-sufficient. Taxpayer money will not go into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that didn't happen. And then when they defaulted on the bonds, that adversely affected the the uh, the, the community. Sorry, just to be clear, I think we're talking about well, there's one community that defaulted on the bonds, and that's Monticello. Monticello, yep. Right, and yep. I and I think that's really frustrating. And actually, there's repercussions not so much for Monticello, but that nobody can really sell revenue bonds that are not backed by the full faith and credit now to right. build these networks. And so, right. you know, I agree with you that 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 did not work out as expected. But I want to offer a little bit of context. Yeah, and and I mean I think that's a, and it's also scared off a lot of communities too. Yes. Um, let's look at Annandale. I mean Annandale, they wanted a fiber to the prem solution. Well, I have not found a single customer that cares how they get their internet. They only care that they get their internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a provider that a cable company that said we'll do a hybrid fiber coax network. Uh, and that wasn't good enough for them. So they tried to get a carve out from the grant program, wasn't successful, ended up with a hybrid fiber coax network. And now they've got all the Internet they can use. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know as much of the details as to how that wrapped up. I, If I was in Annandale, my concern would be that they still don't have the high upload speeds that they would want for certain businesses um, and, and that sort of a thing. Well, businesses can get, I mean... Everybody that I know, if a business has a need and, and wants it, they can get it. They can get fiber because there's fiber, there's fiber to the node there. So mm-hmm. getting, getting fiber to the customers that specifically need it, uh, we do that all the time. No, that's true. And let me just say that I think there's a difference between the way that you would do it. If a, fiber, if a business in Medelia said, we need fiber to us, and you were, let's say, a half mile away, uh-huh. I don't think you would charge them $25,000 up front and $1,500 a month ongoing. Maybe I'm wrong. That's the sort of prices we see, and that's even a low price that I've seen from a major, the largest cable company in the United States. Well, we we do charge an aid to construction on that stuff because if I mean you got to be able to pay for it. I mean, you, sure, you, you can't reinvest in your network if you're not generating revenue. So you, so we do charge. Uh, we had an example. Um, we had a, a a tower outside our exchange that that wanted fiber to it. Uh, and I can't remember what the aid to construction was, but it was it was probably ten grand, mm-hmm. um, eight to ten grand to, to for us to bury to them, um, and and they paid it. Now they paid the regular monthly fees after that, and that's not that wasn't anywhere near fifteen hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, there is an aid to construction on some of those bigger builds. Right. Uh, we're looking at another one now in in St. James uh, where they're building to their their park, and we're talking to the city about. What it's going, you know, how we're going to get the fiber out there. I mean, it's and that's going to be a spendy one too. So there's going to have to be, you know, some sort of help mm-hmm. with the city and a partnership. Um, those things happen. But the the bottom line was the consumers got the 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 level of service that they that they need, uh, and now everybody's happy. So I think there's there has in to Annandale. be in Annandale. Yeah, I think there has to be meaningful conversation. Um, you get sold that 
you know, there's, you got to have, it has to be fiber. Well, it'd be great to have fiber, but some places you can't afford to put the fiber in. Uh, we're seeing fixed wireless working. We've replaced a lot of the, the original fixed wireless stuff that we have uh, in rural Watton County. Uh, and we replaced it with uh, some of the stuff that I was showing you. Mm-hmm. We're getting 30, 40, 50 meg out of that stuff. It's, it's crazy. Right. No, fixed wireless has come a long way. And in a lot of applications, it works well. I'm on the record as being deeply concerned about its ability to serve as universal connection. Oh, absolutely. Right. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, because, I mean, we're talking more than just from the antenna to the customer. That's mm-hmm. the easy part. That's, the, that's where the speeds are great. It's the backhaul. And if you don't get the backhaul right. Or the customer lives on the wrong side of the hill. Right, right. Right. But in those cases, you know, we're finding that we're taking the extra time to put that antenna in the right place. Sure. It's not instead of, we don't just slap them up on the side of a building and go right. on. But you and I both know that there's some providers who are Eps. wisps who are not yes. that. There's yeah. a, you actually said it before I did. You said the exact <laughs> same words. There's, there's this thing called wisps, but there's really two separate groups that yeah. are, I would say, perhaps even roughly equal in size. Those who yeah. are doing it right and those who aren't. Yeah. I mean, those who are, you know, trying to get it up there down and dirty and trying to, you know, they don't care. They just get a signal and, and go. Uh, and then you have the ones that are, are engineering it and they're doing it right. And we're trying really hard not to have service calls. And that's, that's, <laughs> right. that's, that's the goal. Well, that's, that's you know, what you get from a company that has more than 100 years of operating experience. You, you worry about the capital costs, but you really worry about the operating costs. Well, and then the other part of it is when you only have seven employees and they know where your office is and they know where your house is. <laughs> right. You gotta put, we got to put decent stuff up in here uh, or they're going to come into my office and yell. Now, you said something about sort of uh, some people call it like a fiber fetish. You know, I understand that, that you're frustrated with perhaps non-technical people just latching onto this idea. And, and I probably even frustrated people like me who I would say I have good reasons for promoting that. Nonetheless, you like the provision of the Minnesota grant program that requires effectively fiber or very high capacity wireless. The the hundred it has to be scalable to a hundred megabit provision. You think that's a smart provision? Right? I do, and I and the reason I do is because we get an argument from legislators and others that say this is just throwing money away at temporary solutions, and it's not. And because of that scalability requirement, we're not throwing away money, and it's it. It makes sense, and and the it we're using taxpayer money, general fund money. Mm-hmm. There needs to be some accountability for it. It needs to be put out for stuff that's that's going to be there and last. And and it was really smart uh, that they put in. They allow for middle mile projects too, because that allows the fixed wireless to work, and you get some decent backhaul in out of the deal. So um, I think that's an important pr- provision. And so one last issue around munis as we yep. as we come to the end of our time, and that's what do you think about munis in which they put in fiber to lease or, you know, in which they're they're building a network in which it's available and they're not offering services directly? You know, I started out as a, as a combination technician and I worked in our central office and, and stuff. I honestly don't know how that would work. Nobody's been able to explain how you can have multiple providers jump on and off a network uh, like that. Uh, so I, I think once... I'd have a better understanding if somebody could explain to me how that would actually work. Mm-hmm. I, I get putting duct out there and making that available to anybody that wants to put it in. Um, then it's like we talked about on Friday. The problem with that is, you know, getting on and off that duct because that's mm-hmm. not always where you need to be on and off. Um, right. You don't have the right handholds. You don't right have the spot. right, yeah, right handholds in the right spot. And then you end up having to backtrack and that costs more than putting in yourself. Um, but, but sharing a fiber or jumping on an existing fiber that's lit. I, I don't get it. I don't know how that works. So Well, or in this case, could be dark also. 
And so I'm, I'm curious about uh, cases of, uh, would dark fiber be so just sort of similar to what you were saying about the duck then? Yeah, depending on where you go. Now, if you're using it for, for backhaul, now, you know, we lease dark fiber from other companies to get like to the 511 building and things like that. That makes sense, you know, but I, 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 I don't know how to visualize that. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we'll spell it out and yeah, answer yeah. those sorts of questions. Over yeah, time. I, I would be interested. I, I mean, I'm not. I, I'm interested in, in seeing is if there's an application. You yeah, know? but I actually think it's really valuable to have a sense of you as an ISP saying, "I don't really understand how that would work," because yeah. that's something that local governments need to know if they're going to think about this. Yeah, is making sure they're talking to someone like you if they're expecting you to use it. Yeah, you know, and let, let's be honest. I mean, we. The fault that we have on our side is that we have a set um, expectation, or we we know how the how, how the business works. But the days of of doing the traditional models, um, we have to be a lot more creative. I think those days are, are slowly going away. So we have to, particularly a small company like mine, we've got to look at, at new partnerships. And I had a, after you left on Friday, I I had a, a meeting with uh, the IT folks from Blue Earth County. And they're interested in, in doing something in Blue Earth County. And they brought in their map, and they brought in a list of all the providers who are around them. And I looked at that list, and they're all people that I work with today. Um, we own transport groups together, and we are in we do business uh, in many different ways. And so it makes sense to sit down um, and say, okay, what what can we do? You know, maybe I, maybe I take a piece of, of Blue Earth County that I wasn't going to build in before, and uh, the county helps us out and figures out a way mm-hmm. through a broadband grant or, or whatever um, to, to do that. I, I think there have to be creative solutions to, to solving this problem. One thing we all have in common is we want broadband everywhere. We know we have to have that. You know, we also do uh, economic development for the eastern half of Watton County, and we're done chasing 200-job factories. We're chasing, we're going after telecommuting jobs one and two at a time all mm-hmm. the time. And we bring in a doctor or a superintendent. They bring a spouse who can telecommute and bring their job. We win. Your county is also one of the ones in which I see you're imprisoning young people on snowy days. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, if I was still on the school board, we'd have a conversation about that because <laughs> there's some other districts that, that dialed it in. You know, they're learning from home. They do. They call sure. it an alternative learning day. And, right, no, and, I was just thinking of the snowstorm we had and the blizzard conditions with the wind and everything. Yeah, and, yeah. And, uh, Juan Juan County was one of the places where people got stuck. Yeah, they did. Uh, we, yeah, we had over 50 people that were stuck in Medelia uh, yeah. this weekend. and. And I and I was stuck on my farm. I couldn't get into town. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, you know we started with the cold of Minnesota. We'll end with the cold of Minnesota. I love this place. You lived in Texas for a while. I did. I'm glad you came back. <laughs> <laughs> I am too. Um, you know, my my wife was born and raised there, and she she likes to have one good blizzard. So we had to stay at the farm mm-hmm. and get snowed in once a year, and, and she she's done now. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for March, yep. and June. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. June. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Brent. Hey, thanks for having me on, Chris. That was Christopher with Brent Christensen of Christensen Communications. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss out on important research from all of our initiatives. 
Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. And while you're there, please take a moment to donate. Follow us on Instagram. We are ILSR74. Thank you to Arne Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 346 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.